have you ever given it thought about what, what your subconscious was trying to tell you? Well, I think beyond what I've shared, it was an overwhelming feeling that I was never, ever going to get to the answer. Like I was never really going to be able to work it all out because we use the thing to work out, like we're using the brain to work out the brain. And since then, I've become fascinated in different forms of intelligence so Mm. that we have as a part of being human. So body intelligence, heart intelligence, gut intelligence. And if I had the knowledge that I have now back then, I may have taken a different direction. Hello and welcome to Bringing Design Closer and this is HCD. Our goal is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dive forward for organizations to become more human-centered in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. My name is Jerry Scullion. I'm a service designer, a human-centered designer, an educator, and obviously a podcaster here on This Is 8CD. In this podcast, I speak with Melissa Sanova, author of this human and soon-to-be-published book, Design Character. Now, on Melissa's website... They say that I help leaders find a deeper source to fuel their potential for leading others to have great impact in the world. And this is something that really rang true in the conversation with Melissa. We speak openly about their own journey of self-discovery and journey that has led her to a PhD in human-centered design, co-founding Huddle in Melbourne, and now running her own design community for designers titled This Human. I'll throw a link to that one in the show notes. But before we jump in, I have a favor to ask. Look, I've been creating content here at This Is Hate City for nearly six years, all for the love of really sharing knowledge to the global design community, and I love doing this. But one thing that you could do for me is just leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast. It really helps the podcast grow, helps us grow our community across the networks like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. So if you do get a chance, every little helps. And even if you don't leave a review, you can go one better by telling the people that you work with about the podcast. They might find it interesting too. Thanks so much. Let's jump straight into the episode. The whole illustration thing was an accident. I, and there's something really freeing about not having my identity connected with being an illustrator because I just draw stuff and stick it out there and I don't really there's nothing there's nothing whereas my friends who are artists are just like they're really it's not good enough yet it's not it's not exactly what I want to draw and all of this sort of stuff so well they are wonderful I I think they're wonderful because they're um they're unique and when you see them I'm like okay well that's part of that brand so it's yeah doing its job thanks Melissa um, I'm delighted to have you here. We've been chatting for quite a while and, um, you know, for five or six years, actually, to be honest, but we're, we're, I'm delighted to finally have you on, on the podcast. Um, Thank you, names you mentioned to me so many times over the years, but for anyone who doesn't know you, maybe give them uh, an overview of what you do and where you're from. Sure. Um, well, thank you, Jerry, for persisting <laughs> and having me on your show. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe I'll go backwards in time as opposed to a sort of a normal chronology. I'll Tell do it in your reverse engineering background. Sorry? Tell us about the engineering background. <laughs> Let's start there. Okay. So um, I uh, my sort of career or education started when I was doing sort of biomedical engineering and mm-hmm. I made it in neurosciences. Okay. And I was always fascinated with um, how the 
how the human brain worked and and how we made sense of the world and each other and and so uh, that's what I did and that took me to uh, Japan where I did a bunch of brain research and mm-hmm. um, I uh, had a moment where I was just uh, trying to understand whether or not this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life and um, what I realised was I was more interested in understanding how this brain that I was studying interacted with the world and how I could better design that interaction. So how humans meet the world that they occupy and really understanding that because our brains are so different, our realities are so different. So that became a really fascinating question for me. So how do you design for these multiple different, always present at the same time realities that people, yeah, yeah. Are you going to talk about the eyeball? (laughs) yes i can talk about the eyeball so the reason why i decided to uh shift my focus from becoming sort of a brain researcher scientist person Mm -hmm. to a human-centered designer was while i was in japan i had a dream and uh, the dream was of an eyeball uh in space that was uh, frantically trying to see itself, literally. Mm. It was just turning around and around and around. And uh, I woke up that morning and I just felt like, my gosh, you know, I'm using I'm using the brain to um, try and work out the brain and it just felt a little bit futile to me. Mm. It just felt like I'm using, I'm using the brain to try and work out how the brain works and you know, because I studied sort of engineering, there was a bit of sort of systems theory and systems thinking and stuff that I had all mm. already learnt about. And I was like, don't we need a higher order system to make sense of a lower order system? <laughs> so I got yeah. into this bit of a, you know, um, I just realised that it wasn't for me. And then I did my my PhD in human factors and nice. I was interested in... Um, sort of high performance so you know when you've got the human system pushed to the absolute limit and you've got technology pushed to the absolute limit what role does human factors and design play in improving mm-hmm. performance when both of them are maxed out so of course yeah. that meant fighter pilots and jets and and all of that kind of stuff and let's go back to that eyeball a little bit so um been loving the eyeball i just think it's it's a really nice um symbol symbolism yeah what do you think uh, what's your interpretation of of what was happening there in the dream have, have you ever given it thought about um what what your subconscious was trying to tell you well i think um you know beyond what i've what i've shared what i it was an overwhelming feeling that I was never, ever going to get to the answer. Like I was never really going to be able to work it all out because um, we we use the thing to work out, like we're using the brain to work out the brain. Mm. And since then um, I've become fascinated, and this is something we haven't spoken about yet, Jerry, in different forms of intelligence so Mm. um, that we have as a, part of being human so body intelligence heart intelligence gut intelligence 
And if I had the knowledge that I have now back then, I may have taken a different direction perhaps. But in that moment, I was just like, I can't, I'm never yeah. going to get there. It's it's interesting because how do you see organizations hiring for different types of intelligence? Mm. Is that something that organizations are at a point that they can consider um, or is it typically a skills-based um, attribute that they're looking for, like in terms of yeah. building up? Because there's so many different types of intelligence. I, I remember when I was a teenager, and I, I'm not saying I was stupid, okay, right? But in school, I was very artistic and creative in, in those senses. And I didn't probably fall into the, the categories of uh, academic excellence, right? Probably the nice way of saying it. And one of my friends, their their mother, um, their their brother and sister, was was really smart, and she said to my friend Derek, is his name, said, "Oh, um, Scully, which was my nickname, Scully isn't your typical um person to come out of that school. He's got so many other types of intelligence going on." And I was like, yeah. "Is that a backhanded yeah. compliment? Is that a backhanded compliment?" Yeah. I say, and like, and I remember at that stage mid-90s in Ireland I was like I wasn't able to accept that I didn't understand it but now I, I kind of understand myself an awful lot more over the last 15 years but going back to that question um, mm. how do organizations in your experience hire is it for mm. one type of intelligence or, or are they even at that point well uh, I think all organizations are um grappling with what it means to be truly diverse yeah. and inclusive. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, back when we were building Huddle and um, oh, yeah. we have always had a philosophy that good design happens when you have um, multiple and diverse worldviews around a table and, yeah. Um, but one of the things that we did learn about that was that you also need a culture that can withstand that because if you do have differences of perspective and different ways of thinking and different ways of working and different needs around your creativity, then that also causes fr friction. It causes creative mm. friction. It causes, which I have always advocated for, I think that's a good thing. But around that, you need a culture that can withstand that. Mm. And that takes a lot of effort. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are, you know, especially for large organisations that have got a whole bunch of other things that they need to manage from a risk perspective and, mm. you know, a legislative perspective and a governance perspective, it becomes really difficult to do mm. it, I think. Um, and that's not, that's, that's not an excuse that I'm giving them, by the way. I mm. think that it's a really, really important thing for us to get right. Um, and design and creativity only benefits from that, in my yeah. view. I mean, I, am, I do some of my best thinking when I'm doing the dishes. And I was doing the dishes this morning and I was thinking about what it means to be a good service designer, okay, in particular. Mm. And mm. one of the strengths that I can see is the ability to communicate and be succinct and bring people together and have a have a pretty high eq in terms of being able to read situations and read your timing and stuff 
and we can talk a little bit about what that might mean in the remote sense and the distributed teams, but the different types of intelligence, the social intelligence is the bit that I'm really interested in. Um, what's your experience with teams hiring for that? Because if if you look at the the application process for how people are hiring, it tends to be either a portfolio, maybe a conversation, um, maybe some Zoom calls, and then they get in, and then it's the, then it's the real test. What's your take on um, how how teams can hire for that social piece? Because that's that's the integral part I feel um, for teams to be hiring and uh, not always for that social person, but being, being aware of the different strengths of the person. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the, um, a lot of the way that hiring is done is really, um, first of all, trying to work out individual aptitude, right? So skills mm-hmm. and worldviews and there's so many different tests and stuff that you can do at an individual level. And then there's sort of, if it's a really thorough hiring process, then there's sort of group activities perhaps. And I know that at Huddle we had, um, you know, a few, we had sort of an initial interview and then we had a bit of a, a working interview and then we had the can you have a beer with this person interview. And so we were doing a few of these sort of rudimentary, I would call them tests. Mm. Um but I feel like just like in service design, what makes a really um, powerful service de- designer in in my view and also what I've witnessed is someone who can see the in-betweens. So the, and I've always said the magic exists within the gaps, so within yep. the transition points between this and there. And I think it's also true in relationship. So it's yeah. the person who can see the in-between dynamics, the things that aren't said, the, the tension that's being held, mm. and those things can only be witnessed and learnt um, relationally in, mm. in group. Um, so you've asked me a question about what do I know about how organisations yeah. recruit for this. The answer is I don't know much about it. Yeah, because that's fair enough. <laughs> I haven't really witnessed that much of it. Yeah. One of the bits that we were chatting about before um, was the the kind of the reframing of the conversation that a lot of organizations and a lot of practitioners as well to be fair um talk about the outcome of our design efforts like it's on, it's on the the end experience and the end outcome for the business and the customer and what i really like about where you're working with now with the new book design character um available on this uh, this human <laughs> we're not going to go into the sales pitch but um or maybe we will when you're joking. Um, what I really like is about the, the reframing of the importance of the practitioner and getting to know who yourself is and what you stand for and your principles. And that really echoes um, a lot of the stuff that I'm hearing when I coach people as well, because I think something that's happened over the last couple of years with uh, COVID and the pandemic is people are really starting to tap into um, what it means to be me and how I fit into this big system. Tell us where your experience came from. Um, obviously, the eyeball was a pivotal moment in your life, that spinning eyeball, and I think that might have, just read, reading between the gaps, <laughs> um, might, might have put you on a trajectory towards uh, self-identification of what you want to do yeah. with your life. 
Is that fair to say? Yeah. Have I made that assumption? Yeah. yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good assumption. I think there's there's another pivotal moment which we haven't touched on, which you actually um, there was yeah. a reference to this film in your previous mm-hmm. episode. Top Gun. Um, <laughs> was yes. it? You're joking me with with Carl. The <laughs> need for speed. <laughs> it was so know. funny because um yeah because when. 1986 so the first Top Gun film came out and my father and I went um to watch it and there's a scene and I recently spoke in Aruba at a at a leadership conference called Lidera and I opened I opened with this with this story because it was all about purpose and and leadership and and there's this scene where um Kerry Kelly McGillis's character Charlie um she walks out it's after the famous you know you've lost that loving feeling thing oh yeah yeah. and you know she gets introduced and you know she has a phd in astrophysics and the pentagon trusts her so i think you should and she's going to be you know assessing you on your flight performance and all this sort of stuff and she turns around and here's this here's this woman with a phd in astrophysics works the pentagon and she's standing in front of the top 1%, you know, the world's best of the best, and she's got something to teach them. She's got something that's going to make them better. And I remember sitting there and going, I want to be her. You want to be Kelly? There was something I'm in me that just kind of went, I want to be that person who yeah. gets to contribute, continue to contribute to the growth of people who are already doing amazing stuff okay. in the world. And I feel like that's kind of where my my career has sort of circled back to that moment yeah. now where my entire focus. So I've sort of finished up um, in the middle of last year with Huddle and um, fully focused on sort of this human and this human.com and mm. the next book and, and creating courses and stuff that help um, people who do this work mm. be able to understand that they can never, ever separate the designer from the designing Mm. so they need to understand who the designer is so that they can be resilient to the forces that we as people who do this work are going to be coming up against Mm. um, more and more as we push into the status quo yeah and you know you were in Australia for a long time you would have been here when there was the royal commission into the financial services sector and it was just like people were like a gasp and came oh, yeah. with like what's going on and these were people you know so many of our colleagues were working in this industry yeah. you know so it was like for me it was like what is happening here you know and I really dug deep into that and what can I what role can I play what role does this interest between who we are and what we create become relevant in these places. Yeah. And I landed on this term called um, moral fading, which is this sort of slight sort of incremental, almost imperceptible shift of um, your presence in the moment of decision-making because someone who's more experienced than you says, oh, that's the process. That's how we do things around here. Yeah. Just fill out this We're form, follow that process, submit that thing here. Yeah. And what I've understood now is that if I can support people to establish clarity within themselves around what their values are, what type of ethics they actually 
prescribe or subscribe to and what their ethical practice is and have clarity and confidence around their voice yeah. to be able to say, actually, no, that's not okay. And it's not okay for these reasons. I cannot participate in that. I feel like we're mm. going to have a force, you know, a workforce of designers yeah. around the world that are going to become more and more potent. And I, I totally agree. I mean, that's that's a really nice, um, it's really nice ambition and a, and a mission, mm. a vision, all at one um, to work towards that. Yeah, we, we could look at academic structures, okay? Because if you look at how designers are being produced, okay. Um, they go through and a lot of the, the people that I've met over the years tend to be, um, and I'm lucky enough to have worked with a lot of excellent designers. <clears throat> the best designers I've worked with are non-design educated. Um, and that that is something that really kind of, <clears throat> sorry, I've got a frog in my throat, really kind of is an eye opener. I'm like, well, if there's design structures there and there's design, design ac- uh, academics at, out there, why are the best designers sometimes non-design educated? Why do you think that is? And by the way, some of those... I feel like it feels like a bit of a... Like I'm going to pull the pin out of a grenade and kind of... No, no, no. no. This, this, is where, out there. this is where grenades... I, um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, I've, I've now um, for the last few years um, started teaching back into um, sort of graduates or master's graduate level... Um, yeah design courses and one of the things that I've observed is that there is a focus on um, tools yeah um, process um, you know pulling together portfolios how to execute on a design um, how to do so with quality um, increasingly there's a little bit more sort of client relation type stuff how to fulfill a brief you know in the studio mm. type um, classes but I don't think at any point um, you know there is a module that talks about well Who how you? do you need to develop yourself as a person to be able to withstand the complexity pressures uncertainty mm-hmm. that comes with being able to do this work and I wonder whether or not people who are not design educated um, have have come into design uncertain, <laughs> yeah, because you know they don't necessarily have the tick or the qualification or the, mm. so they've had to bring in multiple different perspectives, multiple disciplines into yeah. their emerging practice of design that they're learning as they practice. Yeah, it's also like um, those great designers. I have a couple of people in my mind. They definitely know who they are and they've been through an awful lot. Okay. They've they've yeah. experienced um a lot of life things. And then they could be they could be immigrants, they could have they could have gone through separations, whatever it is, but there there's definitely moments in all of their lives that they've had to sit back and reflect. Mm-hmm. Um and that's something that I found to be very powerful when I was looking at that kind of pattern amongst those. I would put them down as the top performers, the top one percent. Yeah. So yeah. how did you go about finding out who you were and what you stand for? What what was your journey in that process? If not personal, yeah. Melissa. No, not at all. I um so uh 
I've always had, not always, for the last 16 years, I've had a a reflective practice in the mornings. Mm. And um, my version of that is journaling. So I have a journal and I write in it and I've got many, many of them now. Yeah. And old school, like with a fountain pen on paper, you know. Okay. Um, nice. And, um, and one of the things that I realised that process enabled me and I feel like it's the only process that we have to really have an experimental approach to having the witness on board to kind of go, well, how did you go yesterday? (laughs) And you know, that conversation or, you know, that workshop that you ran and, and what happened there and how did you feel and what's going on? And, and just that sort of inquiry. Yeah. Cause we're so good at doing the inquiry when we're, when we're interested in other, someone else's life. Yeah. But obviously there's some barriers to be able to do it to yourself. And what I realized was the clearer I got around where my boundaries were around what's okay, what's not okay in in every aspect of my life, but in particular when it came to my practice around human-centered design, mm. the more people listened to me. Yeah. The more people were quiet when I spoke and more um People would say, "Oh, you know, you you how do you how do you speak so confidently about how do you advocate so strongly for design and and where that was coming from was really just this it was just coming from this place of clarity like I was just really clear hmm. and I feel like that's the and I and I talk a little bit about that actually when I'm teaching the design character material because when you do become clear and you become um, more articulate in what your practice is and what's okay and what's not not okay in your boundaries. Yeah. Then stuff starts to come back at you. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so there's this whole part of that which is around self care. It's around understanding how to have really difficult conversations, how to process difficult conversations because they're the types of conversations you end up having. Um, Do you think it's yeah. fair to say you need to go low? um to really rebuild um because if people in those top one percenters as you as you referred to them if they're high achievers and they're they're kind of um looking to build on it i think sometimes it's harder to get them to come to the table and say well it's just another thing for me to do whereas if you've almost gone low in terms of like you have to rebuild yourself these attributes are much harder or much easier to to adopt because they're self care related, and you don't you're you're building from that point of being quite low. I mean, yeah. low in terms of the mental health kind of state. I mean, yeah. I think after the pandemic, a lot of people are are looking for ways to maintain their health, um, get to know themselves an awful lot better. And journaling was one way. I I did it a number of years ago with the artist's way. I don't know if you remember the artist's way. I do, I do, yeah. And it's really good. And in a former life, I was a singer-songwriter and um, it was something that I was blown away by how powerful it was. The morning pages. Yeah, yeah the morning pages. Mm. Um, but what I want to ask you about, say, say you do those those things, the reflection pieces, um, and I want to pull you back to a term that you, you said there about 10 or 15 minutes ago about moral fading. Um. Mm. How does that affect uh, you in in your practice at the moment? Like you know, because you're not immune to these things. 
they can arrive. Um, and just because you do a practice doesn't mean that you still have to be aware yeah. of it. Uh, how does that yeah. affect you? Can you tell us a little bit more around how you handle that? Well, I feel like there's a couple of things. Well, there's a lot, lot mm. in that question, but there's a couple of things I want to talk to. And I might forget the second one, so I'll say both of them now and then you can remind me. Spit the them out. One. So the first one is the word reflexivity. Yeah. And the, the first one is that, and the second one is about forgiveness and acceptance, okay? So bring mm. me back to that point when I forget because yeah. I'm going <laughs> to. So one of the things that I learned about all those years that I did my reflective practice was that nothing really changed unless I did something different. Mm. And so that's the whole reflection in action piece. So I have always had an experimental approach to my life and obviously to my work. And I say obviously because design is an emergent practice that requires an experimental attitude. Um, And what I realised was that when I sat in reflection and I was able to understand, okay, so perhaps I could have, I could have listened differently in this conversation, or I could have stood up for myself a little bit more in this moment. Then I created a little, and I call them action experiments, and I have them in all of my courses. I would create little action experiments for myself where I would actually do something different. And that the, the, um, extent of that experiment was, um, and I now have language around it, was outside of my comfort zone, but it was still within my confidence zone. So I was uncomfortable. I was doing something different. It was a little bit scary, Mm. but I also knew that I would survive what was about to happen. So I was confident that I was going to get through, but I didn't necessarily know how it was going to go. And once I started, and that is actually called reflexivity. So reflex reflection and action yeah so I feel like that is one part of this whole you know working with moral fading that's fundamentally crucial is that whenever you reflect whenever you get insight you've got to put something different into into practice and learn from that and build from that the second thing I think I said was around forgiveness right and that is that um and I did this whole talk at um, South by a few years ago around um, the dark side of human-centered design. Yeah. And that is that a lot of, and there's this beautiful paper actually, um, which is called Beyond Good Intentions, um, and I'll send you the link so you can yeah. share it. Um, and that's actually about power literacy. But um, we all approach the work that we do, I think, with the intent to, you know, improve an outcome for the people that we're designing with. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we can always do all of the things, have an ethical practice, do as much research as we possibly can, have a reflexivity practice as well, and inevitably we're going we're gonna to do something wrong. We're going to miss something. We're going to – and I feel like um, one of the things that we also need to get really good at is being able to accept that you're not going to get everything right all the time hmm. and to actually have a forgiveness practice around those things where you kind of go, I actually did absolutely everything that I knew to do in the moment and I still got that wrong hmm. and, to, and to be able to go, I'm going to do better next time because I've learned from this. Yeah. And there have been times where I've been coaching designers who are transitioning from being a practitioner to a leader 
And because they knew they're really experienced designers, but they're beginners at leading, they make a few missteps. They say the wrong thing. They go too hard or they go too soft or something and they're still trying to find their way as leaders Mm. and they lose their confidence. And then they keep um, going backwards in their performance as a leader because they take a hit from a self-esteem perspective. Yeah. And one of the things that's really important to maintain is that practice around, look, I'm, I'm always, always, always going to show up and I'm always, always, always going to do my best and I'm not necessarily going to get it right every single time. So when, you're, when your confidence is hit like that, I think that's uh, yeah. a lot of people um, will have felt this at some point in their career. Um, what, what advice do you give to people in terms of getting the strength to show up again? Um, because in, in my experience, I remember years ago, I had an incident where I was in a bank, um, and someone asked me why I was here and I go, well, I'm here to, to design the service. Like, you know, they go, but why are you here? And I go, what do you mean? Like me personally? Like, why are you here? And I'm like, um, fundamentally like on this planet what, what are you talking about and they're like yeah, we don't understand why we've got design in the room and i'm like oh yeah. conversation beyond yeah. me but i remember after that uh i i had signed up to toastmasters a few years before and i kept on going yeah. to toastmasters you know practice my my public speaking and um i went to them and i was like oh my god my conference is in the toilet i said like yeah. absolutely it hit me to the bone like you know and i was mid-30s this wasn't like years and years yeah. ago and it took me months, you know, I was like, I was, you know, dodging the whole kind of like presentations. I was like, oh my God, my, I'm, I'm afraid he's going to be in the room. And he got in my head yeah. uh, and that guy, like, you know, I since heard he was redundant and I did open a bottle of wine that night, but, um, cause he was, <laughs> but it did get in my head and I was finding it really difficult to just to show up again. And it just took mm-hmm. Toastmasters actually helped me get back on my feet in terms of mm. rebuilding the confidence. And that was just getting mm. up in a safe space and, you know, allowing myself to be vulnerable and, and learning myself to say, oh, that actually wasn't anything to do with me. It was more to do with him. Mm. What advice do you give to people who go through those situations? Um, and mm. for listen, I'm like, you know, maybe, maybe you've got perspective on your own experience. How did you do it, Melissa? Well, oh gosh, if you're ever, um, you know, in a situation where you're not wanted in the room, which unfortunately in our line of work can tend to happen, um, you take a hit and I've had many, I've taken many hits like that. Mm. Um, and, and, um, in particular when you, when you get it wrong in your own business as well. So there are times where, you know, we tried to do things and we just, we just really messed it up. And then I, I had a unfortunate practice of feeling like I was sort of responsible for absolutely everything and everyone. (laughs) You know, that way, yeah. Yeah. You know, and until I realised the the arrogance actually that sits in that a little bit, yeah. you know, that you you are so powerful that you are responsible for, you know, everyone and everything. Um, but I would get really affected by things that, that didn't go as I intended. And mm. um, one of the things that I did learn was that um, 
you know, I think you do have to give yourself some time. Like mm. this whole bounce back attitude, you know, chin up, buttercup, yeah. get on with it, you know. Um, I just feel like, you know, people who self-select into this industry of really understanding the human condition and trying to create to to better it or to assist it in some way or to provide more access, you know, these types of people are, hopefully, you know, sensitive humans so that they can mm-hmm. connect with other people's realities. And and it's a little bit like it, it kind of, it does come with the terrain. And so we need to be patient and we also need to practice the, um, this is not all about me. Yeah. Like this is, this is not all my fault. This is not all about my inadequacy or you know, mm. the amount of people I've worked with that are suffering from imposter syndrome, I feel like we're over, overrepresented in the design industry. Yeah. It's like, you know, everyone, even people that have got all the degrees and all the PhDs and all the experience will still say, you know, I was in the room and I felt like an imposter. Yeah. It's when mm. you're like more you know, the the less you feel confident. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a kind of a juxtaposition in, in, um, in that whole kind of mindset. One of the things that we were speaking about, um, and I'm, I know I'm jumping between topics here a little bit, but the unconscious design, I remember that term that you said earlier on. Yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about this um, and what it yeah. means. Yeah. So it was, a, it was another thing that um, drove me to start focusing on this, this, sort of intersection between who we are and oh. how we design and what we design and why we design. Um, and that is that, you know, there's there's so many restrictions inherent in the relationships that are formed between, say, a design agency and a, and a client organisation, yeah. right? There's a contract, there are deliverables. And in some organisations, you know, those deliverables or those outcomes need to be prescribed during the procurement process, let alone at the beginning of the the project or having them emerge through understanding of the people that we're trying to serve. And um, and so what what tends to happen is these, you know, these structures, these artificial structures get into the heads of, you know, the design teams and the leaders And what I would see is a design process that's trying to meet um, a particular criteria or a literally like a checklist of we've got personas done, you know, journey map done, um, report done, um, systems map done. Um, and in amongst that and the pace that's expected and the, you know, the um, – the urgency which some this work is done within um, I can, creates a really difficult context for designers to actually just stop and kind of go, well, actually, is this is this appropriate? Like, is right. are we are we doing work in the way that we believe in? You know, yeah. are we are we um, honouring the um, the opportunity that's being presented to us in a way that's actually aligned with who we are and what we want to do. And this isn't, I'm not talking about um, being a purist and, Mm. you know, following the design process to the absolute 
that's not at all, has never, ever been my philosophy. But what I am um, advocating for is for designers to understand that just as um, it is important to become proficient at all of the tools um, of the trade and the frameworks and to keep up to date with trends and, and all of that, as that is all very important, it's also really important to do the work on yourself and understand, well, how do you talk about your own personal values and what is the Mm. rub with your personal values and the values of the organisation that you work for Mm. and how do you negotiate that? So I'm not saying only work for organisations that are 100% aligned with your values. I think that's not, Mm. you know, the engineer in me says that's impractical. But I feel like the inquiry needs to be present so that you know. You know, one person who's in my network is really clear on her values and she's working for an organisation where there is no values alignment right now and she knows that and she's there conscious of that and I feel like and she's there for another reason, right? She's trying to get a different type of experience. She has deliberately put herself in that context and I feel like that's the difference. So when you understand where you are and you know you're there for a particular reason and you have chosen, you have agency around that, that's conscious when you haven't done the work and you happen to be doing the type of work that you're doing and you don't necessarily have this critical lens on that, that is mm. what I'm referring to as the unconscious design. Yeah. So that's really interesting because I think it's very easy for us to say that um, you should do the work on yourself, figure out who you are, and then match yourself to organizations mm-hmm. that live to those values that's what most people will be championing i know that's what i've kind of done over the last 10 years like i got opportunities to work for gambling companies so i can't do that doesn't i can't i can't wake up in the morning put my head in the pillow at night and be comfortable um it's really it's really interesting and refreshing to hear a different perspective on that if you challenge think- if you challenge yourself though at that at that level and you're working you're taking money from from a system that is dysfunctional and it's ultimately destructive to the fabric of society. What benefit is that to the human? Yeah. Well, it's even, you're touching on a topic that is even bigger than what we've been talking about at the moment, which is um, the transition of my perspective from human-centered design to, to, you know, whatever we want to call it, but more than human. Yeah. Um, And I've just finished reading, listening to the most amazing book called New Ways of Being by James Bridle. And I'll send you that link as well. I think you will personally love it. Um, Where he talks about the delusion, these are my words, not his, by the way, but the delusion that that we have as a human species, that we are the most intelligent. (laughs) Yeah, we're not. And that... And, and one of the things that I really, um, you know, with all the work that I'm doing, um, I believe is possible is, is a global mindset transformation over time mm. where it becomes inconceivable for us to participate in the design of systems that are extractive to planet and to people. I really believe that. Mm. And I believe that the pathway to that is through this type of work and this type of work is around connection 
connection to self, connection to each other, connection to planet. And um, one of the things that I talk about a lot in, in why I'm serving the community that I'm serving, which is this community of what I call world creators and world builders, like people who, whether it's a pixel on a screen or a service or a policy or a strategy or an organisation, you know, these are worlds that we're creating. And more and more people that do this type of work, that understand where what their fabric is, what their foundations are, mm. and get closer and closer and closer to a, a way of being together on this planet that is appropriate for everyone on it. And I'm think I'm talking beyond human, animals, plants. Like imagine imagine having a role in establishing that. Yeah. Like that is, um, I can't think of anything more um, important. Important. I want to say noble. You know, like yeah. to be able to do that. Um, so, what does it look yeah. like? So, I know you've got thishuman.com, um, and yeah, how, how do you enable the the self reflection? Like, as obviously you coach as well, I coach as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. What what kind of things can people expect? Because you've got a community there at this human. Um, yeah. What kind of people? Well, what can people expect to for Melissa to to offer uh, that that enables? And this is not me for me to set up a, a soapbox, but I'm I'm interested in the self reflection yeah. piece. For me, I use a psychologist, so I I love someone to challenge me. Look at my life challenge so I, i'm always doing that it's not like something that i do on blocks i always tap in monthly okay so it's like going to the gym for me um yeah. is that something similar that they people can expect at this human.com yeah yeah it's really deep work and one of the things that i noticed in my coaching practice and i think it's a nature of the type of um, interaction or space I end up creating with people um, is that it becomes a very intimate, and I don't obviously mean that in the way that it's typically used, but it becomes a very close and connected dialogue. And so what I've started to do very recently is I am now training <laughs> yeah. um, in body-centred psychotherapy. And okay. the reason why I'm doing that is because I have had to hold, and this is part of my ethical practice when I'm working with people, a really clear boundary between the professional context, which I feel qualified to talk about because I've lived it and and my experience is there, versus the personal context where I don't feel qualified to talk about because I don't have that training, that therapist training. Which is brilliant. And so in my, yeah, Yeah. and in in my coaching practice, you know, I've, I've always been really clear about what that line is and I, I established yeah. the relationship at the very beginning going, when I know all of this is one for you, but this is where, this is the dance space. This is yeah. where we are, yeah? It's really important. But now what I realise is that the type of work I want to do with people is deeper than that and it needs to be deeper than that because this plays out in every aspect of our lives actually, these, yeah. this transformation. Yeah. And so I'm busy. I'm busy educating myself and and getting qualified to be able to hold Hold a more inclusive space for people. Yeah. Yeah. Melissa, we're coming towards the end of the episode and 
you know, again, I'd love to invite you back um, because there's other bits that we didn't really get to weave yeah. into the fabric of this conversation. Yeah. Um, if you're up for it, I'd love to do another one in a couple, a couple of weeks about ethics because um, I think we've got a lot, a lot of common ground in, in that space. Um, I'd love to hold space with you on, <laughs> on that. Um, I've really enjoyed chatting with you, okay, and I mean this with the bottom mm-hmm. of my heart. I'm, I, I try to be as honest and transparent, but just being open and vulnerable enough to talk to me about even the dream that you had, I know that was, I might have pushed you into an area that you were like, oh, okay, here we go. I'm somewhat vulnerable here. So I really appreciate <laughs> you giving me that time and, that, and the energy. And I know it's it's Melbourne evening uh, at the moment. So I appreciate you meeting me at that time as well. Um, for people who want to stay in touch and, you know, find out more about you, um, what's the best way for them to do that? the best thing to do is to go to thishuman.com mm-hmm. and everything is there, the commun- links to the community, the books, the courses, all the information is, awesome. is there. I'll put a link to those in the show notes and I, I'll also drop a link to your LinkedIn as well if anyone wants to Great. connect with you and, and learn and follow you as you go along. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Jerry. It was an absolute pleasure. And there you go, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more, why not visit thisishcd.com where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there. Thanks again for listening.